Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 55th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Ben Heinemann, co-founder and CEO of Splash, an end-to-end event marketing platform that executes, measures, and scales your event programs. Ben is the kind of entrepreneur that reminds you that it's up to us to create our own opportunities. And as he has witnessed, each opportunity can open the door to the next one. Take his current company, Splash, which was a pivot away from an original idea called One Clipboard. It was a Hail Mary opportunity that ultimately saved the company, and it was the right product to build a successful business at scale. The company has since raised $14.5 million in venture funding from Axon Venture Partners, Spark Capital, and Lara Hippo. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Ben's background as a serial entrepreneur, going all the way back to a free walking tour company in Washington, D.C., which taught him web marketing skills, his experience running events at Thrillist, and how partnerships made a significant difference to their success, the story behind the pivot to Splash, and how they found the viral coefficient, which allowed them to hit scale, how to speak the same language with investors when raising capital, and why you should prioritize simplicity when giving your pitch. Great advice on how to become a better leader, plus so much more. Okay, quick side note. I am really excited to announce the VentureFizz Spark Award. It is a new monthly award that will recognize a startup in the New York tech scene. Entrepreneurship is hard, and we think it is super important to take a moment to recognize that hustle and reward companies who are incredibly innovative and are seeing tremendous momentum. We opened up the nominations last week, and we narrowed it down to five companies for voting. Those companies are Bowery, Mindful, Rally, Seven Rooms, and Spark Neuro. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash Spark to vote. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ben. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So as I was prepping for our interview, I noticed uh, that you're a serial entrepreneur and going kind of way back, one of the companies that you started was a walking tour company in Washington, D.C. So I just kind of thought, I'm like, I bet you there was some fun facts that always surprised the crowd as, as these tours were being given. Well, I, I, thanks for calling me a serial entrepreneur. I'm, as, as You're right. I've been doing a bunch of these, and my first company was a free walking tour out of D.C. Um, yes, there were some hilarious facts. Um, we actually found out that some of the facts that we had taken from other tours were untrue. And so I always found those to be the funniest ones. A one that we found from another tour that we, we at some point had to stop telling people because we realized it was false uh, was that there, there used to be an elevator in the Washington Monument um, that was steam-powered, and only uh, men were allowed to ride it, and they would serve whiskey on it. That turned out to be false. Uh, <laughs> we did learn. One, one thing that was true is that uh, George Washington didn't have wooden teeth, but he, he had hippopotamus bone teeth, uh, and those were extremely porous and he used to spend uh, a, a good chunk of his, of his salary on, on wine, on port. He was a big port fan. And so they actually turned his teeth purple. And so that's where, why they thought they were wooden teeth. That actually is true. Wow. That's a fun fact. Never knew that. Yeah. That we, we, was a good tour we used to run. A fun experience for sure. Well, let's even go further back. So uh, where did you grow up? I'm from uh, Brookline, Massachusetts, right next to Boston, Mass, where I believe you're from. Yes. 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 I didn't realize that. Okay. Oh, yeah. then, like, what did your parents do for work? And 
Oh, well, so my dad uh, was a salesman. Uh, he used to sling the uh, product that my grandfather started. He started one of those Route 128 uh, tech companies called Instrom. My grandfather did. My dad was a top sales guy. Uh, it, was, it was a cool company. He used to test the strength. Actually, still the standard in testing strengths of, of other products. And my mom was a graphic designer for Technology Review. She was the head of the graphic design department. And uh, that's the uh, magazine uh, at, uh, at MIT. Sure. So, absolutely. Great, great publication. I'm proud, proud to say that my pedigree is that of a sales lead and a designer. And so hopefully that's been useful in, in building the business that I've been building. And then how'd you end up at Vanderbilt? Oh, well, that's actually a funny story. I went to a boarding school called St. Mark's, which is a private school outside of Boston. And I was the only Jew. And I used to host Shabbats there and, you know, kind of uh, created a little bit of a community for Jews. And one day, this is a true story, there was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal that said that the Vanderbilt University was looking for Jews. And so I immediately called up the guy who donated the Hillel, told him my story and, uh, you know, worked my connections. Because I'll tell you, I did not have good enough grades to get into Vanderbilt. And so, uh, hey, you got, you got to do what you can do. And I'm, I'm proud to say I, I got in it. Uh, became uh, one of the, the leaders of uh, the Jewish frat down there, AEPI, and built it to uh, from, I think it was about 12 people to about 120 people by the time I left. So wow. I did what I said I was going to do. Well, it's a beautiful campus. I actually visited it two years ago. I took my family to Nashville, and I just love seeing college campuses, and we checked out the football stadium. It was really cool. Yeah, it's, it's actually designed by the same guy who designed uh, um, Central Park here in New York. It's, a, it's an incredible, it's a national arboretum, that campus. So I would highly recommend anyone going to check it out. Absolutely. So how did you get into entrepreneurship? Like you, you, we started talking about your, the first company you started, which was a free walking tour company. So that was also intriguing too. Yeah. You, you know, I went on a, uh, on a tour in Berlin. Um, so as, as anyone will tell you, uh, the best ideas are, are stolen. So I went on a tour in Berlin. It was a free walking tour. I uh, just kind of was enamored with it. I wrote up a business plan for uh, how I could bring that free walking tour to uh, America on the plane ride home from my spring break trip to Berlin, um, turned it into an entrepreneurship class that I was taking, got a C on that. Um, I think it was actually a C minus on the business plan. And I told the, uh, that professor to go fly a kite. I was going to do it and I didn't take a job. I instead started the tour company. That was my first time getting into entrepreneurship. And man, I've just been kind of riding this wave ever since. And did you, like, were you making, did people tip you afterwards or tip the, the people on the tour? That's, like, that's exactly right. We, we yeah. actually got really good at gaming TripAdvisor. So we were, became the number one thing to do in Washington, D.C. Wow. Was really, yeah, it was, it was actually a really important move. That's kind of how I learned uh, how to do web marketing because um, we were actually getting kicked off the National Mall by the Tour Guides Guild. Uh, you can actually Google this. this is a great Washington, uh, uh, me, Washington Post article on this. We were considered solicitors on the National Mall, which is not allowed, you're not allowed to do on federal land. So we had to move off the mall, and the only way we could survive was by being uh, good internet marketers. And so that's right, we got tipped, uh, we, as we used to say in the beginning of the tour, if you like what you hear, we'll appreciate your generosity. If you don't like what you hear, write your complaints in the back of a $20 bill, hand that to me, and I'll make sure it gets to my boss. And uh, we, we learned a lot about that. Tipping culture is amazing. You know, we ended up, it was about $4 and a quarter per person per tour is what we used to make. And there were about 
36 people per tour. And uh, if you can believe it, that that company's still going on. The company that uh, purchased our business is still thriving and has expanded uh, nationally. It was very cool to watch. And, and what did you ask each person to leave a review on TripAdvisor, and that's how you worked your way up to the to the top? That's exactly right. And we learned uh, at an early age, uh, you build your reputation one customer at a time. So every single person we talked to, we said, hey, this would mean the world to us. And uh, lo and behold, they did it. And so That's that really awesome. helped us climb those charts. And then uh, next on the, your, your career path, you joined Thrillist? Well, actually, no. You know, I was, I was, I, I was pitching somebody to uh, write about me uh, as, as a tour guide and ended up partnering with that person to build a big conference called the Summit Series. And I was one of the founding members of a conference called the Summit Series that's actually mm-hmm. still going on today. Um, and so uh, the founder of Thrillist came on that first summit. This is a conference we threw in Mexico with about 83 uh, entrepreneurs right around the time where tech was becoming sexy again. And man, uh, I, he said, hey, what do you do for a living? I said, I own this walking tour company. He said, heck, sell that. Come work for me as my director of events up at Thrillist. And Thrillist at the time was uh, primarily an email magazine targeting uh, dudes uh, ages like 22 through 35. And I said, heck, I'm in. And I sold the tour company and immediately moved up to New York and started running uh, my company, uh, started, started running events at Thrillist. And also I left my post at the Summit Series. They've, st- they've since gone on to do incredible things, including a purchase Powder Mountain in Utah. So I've been wow. fortunate enough to watch them grow. It's an amazing conference. That's awesome. Well, Thrillist is a very interesting company being that it's so you know, localized, right? So if you are, you know, ma- mainly it's you know, a male demographic that's reading Thrillist, and if you want to find things to do in your local city, that's kind of what they do. So how did you build out events for a company that was, you know, had such a wide area of, you know, city coverage? Well, that's a really great question. You know, I, I think one of the most important things I could tell anybody building out a, an event program is don't underestimate partnerships. Uh, we really leaned on partners. We found the win-win. We were a publication, so it was relatively easy to barter. Um, but I still use this, you know, in any event I'm throwing now, the more partners, the better. Uh, helps you get the word out, helps you get a brand, it helps it make it look very much more significant. Um, and so really, you know, even when we came into, you know, a, a city that we didn't have a huge presence in, like Atlanta, for instance, um, we would find partners on a local level, we'd ask around, we'd find publications that we thought we could uh, trade lists with. And it was, it was a big deal for us that, uh, you know, these partners really kind of got our back and that's how we built the brand. Um, so that, that's the answer to that, you know, partners and, and, and also, I guess the other piece I would say is kind of, I really at an early age started to build my Rolodex of vendors in every city. And so, you know, I, I think you can't start early enough building a, a, a group of vendors and partners as an event marketer. And, and Thrillist obviously, you know, continued to just grow and scale while you were there. So what were some of the, the things that you learned while you were part of Thrillist? Oh, so, so much. I met Ben Lear, who was my CEO and boss there. He, he just really, <clears throat> he, he demanded a tremendous amount from everyone and was clear about his demands, but also um, cared deeply. And I think that that's something I bring to being a CEO of this business. I, I demand the highest, highest expectations, but, but, I, but I care. And, and he really taught me that. Um, I also learned the importance of a list and, and kind of maniacally growing that list and investing in that list and doing it, as I mentioned, through partners. You know, Thrillist really for a long time was nothing more than an email list. And now they're, just their gigantic business. They turn into group nine. They have several publications underneath them. I mean, they, they command massive marketing budgets. So uh, 
it all starts with a list and a list of people that you invest in and you care about and kind of act very professionally and kind of own that voice in front of. So, man, there's so many good lessons. But I guess one other piece I just layer on here is just the importance of uh, getting a job. You know, I just didn't know anything. I didn't understand marketing. I didn't understand media buying. I just didn't understand brand. Um, and I was running my own business prior to that. Uh, looking back, it's just it's silly to think about what a novice I was and how important it was for me to actually have a job after college. Something I, I skipped from the, with the tour company, but was excited to do it with Thrillist. But it, it's it's really like this is why I love doing these interviews because it's fascinating to see like you know you, you created an opportunity to join Vanderbilt or to go to school at Vanderbilt, right? Which you know you self admitted like man were my grades good enough who knows right but you found a way right and then you started a company and then you started another one that created an opportunity where you know ben was part of the speaker series that led to another opportunity so it's you know it's 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 that type of creating your own opportunity that you know people just need to recognize that it just doesn't naturally happen yeah you know i, I remember distinctly the moment that ben offered me that ben ceo of thrillist offered me a job and, and just kind of feeling like this was a wave, you know, I think the opportunities don't come, they don't come super often. And so you kind of have to know when it's your opportunity and when it's not your opportunity. Certainly there's been so many different cool ideas and opportunities that I've passed on. Um, so yeah, I think kind of uh, at least kind of trusting your gut has been something that I've, I just, I try to listen really, really hard. And as you said, it, it's kind of been a mix of creating this, the opportunities as well as listening and taking advantage of them when it's time. So yeah, it's been an exciting career so far. Uh, still in my early days, I, I hope. <laughs> well, let's fast forward to what you're currently up to, and um, you know, what, what was the moment where you're like, okay, it's time to start my own company again, and that aha moment of what led you down the path to start Splash. Sure. So, so actually, you know, it wasn't Splash that I started first. I was at Thrillist and, and really was, I was a pretty good event planner, but I just kept on screwing things up, task lists, budgets, contact lists. And so I actually enlisted my friend and co-founder, Brett, to, to help me build um, a piece of technology we called One Clipboard. And we thought it was genius. I, I still do. It was, a, it was a budgeting tool that kind of uh, mad-libbed contracts and really helped you kind of think through everything based off of event elements really a beautiful piece of tech. Um, we built that while I was at Thrillist and, and after Thrillist really for me. Um, and, you know, I'll save you what it was really a long year and a half uh, story, but we ended up, we, we just asked everyone, everyone said it was a great idea. And then lo and behold, no one would use it. And that was a really interesting lesson on user research. People will tell you a lot of things, but until they actually uh, put their money where their mouth is or, or their time where their mouth is, uh, it doesn't mean anything. And so we, we learned that um, we learned that the hard way. We, we spent a lot of time, a lot of energy on, on a product that really never saw the light of day. Um, and then it's about you know, as I said, about a year and a half in, um, we'd raised a little bit of money. We had a very very small team of engineers, and it was about to go out of business. And I just knew that this team was so darn good. I, you know, I just I kind of threw a hail mary pass, and we. Um, launched Splash as a way to promote one clipboard at South by Southwest in 2012. Uh, we got an article from Mashable and Splash, as I said, it was really just, it was kind of a, uh, it was a gimmick. It was, it was kind of a launch idea. Uh, we still thought one clipboard was the right answer, but you know, the first users of Splash was uh, Spotify and Google. And I remember the Ganza Vort Hotel group, which was a, was a big hotel group back then. Wow. And yeah, we just kind of, it just was very clear that, that, that we, we caught something that we had just never been able to catch with one clipboard, which is an actual usage. 
And so that, that we, we said, Hey, well, you know, I won't even, I won't lie to you here. Even then, even after we found a viral <laughs> coefficient and gotten great, you know, usage, um, I still held on to one clipboard. I just oh, said, this is still I, too good of an idea. And, and I, and I want to you know. drill down a little bit more on that because it sounds like you, you know, you did the right things. You did the upfront due diligence on the market, you know, interviewing customers and seeing if they're going to use this product. Right. So looking back, is there something that you could have done differently that, you know, cause it sounds like you were doing what you should. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I think the, I think the thing we did really well is we, as they say that, you know, use the word pivot, we pivoted. Yeah. Um, I think the only thing I could have done differently is I could have let go of the one clipboard product sooner. I mean, we had so much technical debt by the time we ended up sunsetting that product. I mean, we were up to our ears in it. Yeah. And you know, the whole system was going slower because of it. And, and at some point, my team had to kind of have an intervention with me and say, hey, man, we'll come back to this, but we got to move on. So that I definitely think I could have done differently. Um, you know, I think that the, the, what I've learned here is that the faster you can get it out to market, the better. Uh, you know, I'd say really seeing if people will use things don't really listen to them you know listen to their usage don't listen to their words um but at the end of the day i think the only thing i i would really push people to to do is just to to be okay with 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 change and to be you know that that's what i wish i were more okay with at the time so it was a journey i you know i, I don't know if i could have written it like this but here we are and i'm really excited to say that splash is thriving well so the getting traction piece at first. So you started this just kind of a Hail Mary and you had some great brands using it initially and you touched them on a, a piece that um, I think is important here. So the viral coefficient, like how, how did that come about? Oh, um, viral coefficient. Well, I mean, so just to be clear about what it is, we, we learned that every single time that somebody RSVP'd, um, well, I should say every time 20 people RSVP'd, one new person would create an event. Now, that's since gone down a lot. Now it's closer to one out of every 200 or so create a new event and become a new user. Um, we, we really made sure the brand was binary, meaning that the, the brand was not ours, but it was theirs. We took our brand out of the picture, and I think people really resonated with that. I mean, that's certainly what people report. Um, they, they started to you know, say, hey, I want this because this brand, Splash, is kind of getting out of the way. And we did that through so many different things. You know, we moved our, we moved our logo from the top left to the far right, or to even to the bottom of the page, as opposed to kind of taking up, you know, the most important space, we took up the least important space. Mm -hmm. and, and that was, you know, things, moves like that really help people get comfortable to, with trusting us and, and trying it out with their own people. So I, I think that's what you're asking. It's kind of why, um, how, you know, I would just say, if you're building something, don't reinvent that wheel and, and do focus on the viral wheel. I mean, there's so many great businesses that have nailed this viral coefficient. I think of Dropbox or SurveyMonkey. Um, gosh, what's another good one? MailChimp does a great job at this, where it's really every time you engage, they subtly remind you that it's them and that you should come, 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 come talk to them if you want to do something like this. Well, and I remember the first time I, I used your product to build an event and it, it was a drastically different user experience. It was a clean UI, simple, and the page it produced was beautiful compared to competitors out there. So you must have thought deeply about the user experience. We did, we, you know, and it's been, it's, it remains a gigantic challenge, mostly because 
um, design is somewhat infinite and to make, to keep things fluid while keeping them um, different and, and incredibly flexible uh, remains one of the biggest challenges of my life. It's just so darn challenging to, to do both. And so that's, yeah, that's, uh, it's, I appreciate that it's been a good experience for you. And I will say that sometimes it doesn't, you know, people push the limits of the product and it, and it, it removes that beauty of the user experience while maybe kind of sacrificing that for, for the beauty of the actual page. So, you know, it, it, it's a struggle. We, we, we want to enable our users to, to feel like they can take it all the way while boxing them in enough that it feels um, that, that giving them the right answer. Right. And that, that's been, that's been something we've been focusing a lot hard time on. What's the current scale of the business in terms of users, employees, yeah, we have about 100 employees. We're about to uh, raise our Series C. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we're in a growth stage. Um, from a user standpoint, you know, we really are an enterprise business at this point. So we look at um, how many enterprise seats we have. And right now we're, we're cracking over around 25,000 active um, enterprise seats. And, you know, because events happen you know, once a year sometimes, I think probably our, our usage from an, well, another way to look at it is our attendees and we processed, oh man, it's crazy. It's something like, it's something like 80 million attendees come through the system. I got to recheck those numbers, but it's something huge like that. We have a huge amount of people that use our, our software. And it's major brands using it too. Oh yeah. I mean, we power all the events for some of the top brands in the world. It's a, it's a crazy reality to, to be part of just to know that, you know, they're, most important experiences are, you know, trusting our software. It's something we, you know, we don't take lightly. It's something we really focus on. It's a, it's a heck of a responsibility. And, you know, and some days I, I sit back and say, why didn't I get into a, a different, you know, a different type of product? I mean, if you think about events, events are the hardest thing to do anyway and the highest stakes thing to do. And for whatever reason, I've chosen to build a piece of software for it. So, um, you know, I do not, uh, <laughs> I do not sleep well, but it's, it's been a fun, it's been a fun ride. Nevertheless. I guess because it's hard is why I get the opportunity to do it. You know, there's a, there's a big moat. Anyone who wants to come at me has to QA like we QA and, and test all the edge cases that we test. It's, there's a reason why so few get to this point, at least in this industry. We talked about raising capital. Um, so what has the experience been like? at each step along the way. So you've raised, you know, a little bit of money at first you said, and then you did a series A, a series B, and now you're looking to raise a series C. So what did that fundraising process look? And what were some of the challenges that you would, you know, share as far as other entrepreneurs when raising capital? I, I think that the, the most important thing to remember is that, um, well, actually the most important thing to remember is that this is hard. And that it's deliberately hard. If it, you know, you could probably raise at a very small valuation, and you probably could get it done. Um, but the goal is to raise at a higher valuation, maybe not the highest. But to do that, you're going to have to negotiate. You're going to have to find a perfect fit. That is just darn hard. So just know that it is a a marathon. Okay. So once we put that kind of the emotional side on the table for a minute, I'd say some of the most important things that I try to remind entrepreneurs and certainly these are things that i've picked up as i've gone down the road is that you know investors are in the business of money that's their job Mm -hmm. Um, and while certainly they sometimes have a good eye for product or care about the user experience 
more often than not, they want to understand that there's an opportunity for an outcome. And so speak money, sell them money. Don't sell them product. Don't sell them, um, man, don't even sell them vision. They want to know money. Now, I don't, that's not going to be the case for all investors. And certainly it's a, it's a beautiful dance of vision and money. But if you're not prioritizing the financial unit economics of your business when speaking to an investor, you're just speaking in a different language. Um, so that's number one. That's something that I learned the hard way. We kind of really changed the way we spoke to investors and really started focusing on the unit economics of the business. Even when those unit economics weren't clear, we were at least speaking in those terms so that they could have a, a thoughtful conversation with us. So I'd say that's number one thing I learned. Um, you know, the other piece that I learned is that, you know, signals are, are, are really useful in this process. So, so as you think about kind of how you're prioritizing your story, I would say that both the simplicity of the story and the signals of the story are the things that you want to be thinking about. Um, what patterns can they recognize, be it, you know, your pedigree or your team's pedigree, um, be it, you know, how you've approached the market, be it, you know, the level of growth that you've achieved thus far, um, or, you know, gosh, Man, you know, literally just think in terms of signals. That's kind of all they're looking for is kind of, will this give me money? And what are their signals, a.k.a. patterns, can can they they line up? Um, And, yeah, you know, the last piece I I kind of hinted on a moment ago is simplicity. Just to kind of articulate this point, I have processed, I want to say in this business, probably something like $50 million in tickets last year. I mean, $50 million of tickets, which, you know, I, without giving away too much, that, that, that dwarfs my, my uh, enterprise revenue. But nevertheless, I never, not once in any of my pitches will ever mention the ticket revenue. I won't even talk about it. Now, the reason we do it is because it helps subsidize the freemium product. It's kind of table stakes to play in this market. So, you know, we, we, we do charge, a, you know, a fee for our ticketing. But if I bring that up, it, it confuses the story. And so even if you think that there's something that seems important, as they say in journalism, you know, kill your darlings, that's not as important as simplicity. Prioritize simplicity when you're telling your story. Um, and, and, and by the way, if somebody's telling you that they don't get it, that means no. Oh, that's another good one. Just, just, a, just a real, this is a real easy one. An investor is giving you feedback and you think you can negotiate or you think that it really matters why they're saying no. And unfortunately, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, they just don't want to do this deal. And you need to go, you know, you can try to look for any kind of helpful hint and feedback in there. At the end of the day, they just don't want to do the deal. And it's much easier for them to say no than to say yes, spend months on due diligence and then years with you in a boardroom. At the end of the day, if they're not, if they're just giving you some sort of runaround, you don't need to negotiate that. Just keep on moving. That was, I can't tell you how many scathing emails I wrote back or how many times I tried to plead that they looked again. And just at some point I realized that's just them saying no. Yeah. And they, they don't, they're trying to be, they're trying to be nice about it. Um, that's not to say don't listen for feedback, but oh man, I wish someone had told me this early that just that, that, that's just a no. They just, they're not that into you. Yeah, it's hard telling someone no. Right, right. They have a hard job too, believe it or not. It doesn't seem like it. it is a, it's not an easy job. So how did you learn to be a, a CEO and, and lead you know, a venture-backed company? Oh, man, practice, practice, practice. Um, I don't know that I have figured it out yet. You know, I, it, I, I am noticing that my job is very different of being a founder than being a CEO. Um, I'm kind of growing up to become a CEO. Um, 
I'll tell you, I think that the only thing that I've learned here is that my job is to recruit, <clears throat> find people who are much smarter than I am in aligned with my vision, um, and then to ensure the connective tissue uh, between the departments. That, that's kind of at, at this stage at around, as I said, about 150 people, what, what I do full-time, mm-hmm. recruit and optimize connectivity between the departments. I guess the third piece is, is articulate and communicate the vision. And I'm finding more and more how important that is. It's very challenging, I'm finding, to, to, to make sure that everyone knows the vision of the business at all times. You know, I'll often say to my team, you know, a, a leader's job is not that of a beacon, you know, like a big light, but instead that of a lighthouse, one, a light that does the, says the exact same thing over and over and over again. Believe it or not, repetition is one of the most important jobs that I've found as a CEO. And so... Uh, you know, it's, those are my three things I'm doing right now. Your question is, how did I learn? I, you know, I try to surround myself with CEOs that I think are really smart. You know, I, I really kind of go out of my way to, to make friends with them and ask them hard questions. Um, and then I also, I guess I would say, remember that nobody really knows what they're doing. So just keep on reading books, keep on reading their, your employees. And uh, if things are working, great. You know, be, you know uh, have a healthy... Uh, amount of paranoia when things are great and when things aren't going that great take all of the blame and and try to adjust and, and you know put yourself right out there on the front lines I, I typically find that the, the best insights and the best actions that I've been able to to figure out happen when I'm when I'm really in it when I'm when I'm really in the product really in the business um, otherwise you know there's there's some things that are just your job Mr. or Mrs. CEO and uh I just, I think that's an important thing to remember. That's not somebody else's job. That is your job. And you talked about one of the key um, parts of your role right now is hiring and recruiting. So how do you evaluate talent and make decisions on, you know, hiring people for your team? Sure. Um, You know, there's there's a great book called Who, W-H-O. I would recommend every CEO read it. Um, So that's kind of, there's a lot of what I would tell you is right in that book. So I would just say, go check that out. Um, I'd say that the thing that I have messed up that I, I think can be really helpful as you think about uh, who you're hiring and kind of making sure. And by the way, that's the point, making sure. Uh, you know, a lot of people can talk and talk. How do you make sure? And I find that the best way to make sure is to get specific. If they're asking specific questions or are able to recount very specific encounters or, or stories, and they can really go deep, they've done that job. They know it. I mean, think about any job that you've actually done. You can walk me through the entire thing. Right. It's typically when they're vague or theoretical or, or use big symbolism or, or kind of have huge ideas that, that aren't really, you know, that's not to say someone shouldn't have big thoughts or big vision, but if they can't get really specific about how they're doing it, I, I've just found that that is a BS meter and you kick them out. Mm-hmm. Kick them out of the process fast. Um, I've made some big mistakes in my hiring, especially on the exec level um, in the early days. And if I look back, I just wasn't specific. I was just enamored with their big thoughts or their pedigree. Gosh, how many times have I spent time with somebody or even hired somebody just because they worked at a really great company? It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Optimize for specificity. That's what I've found. That's great advice. What do you like to do outside of work? What, what's outside of work mean? <laughs> I'm kidding. I, well, look, I got a kid now, and I have a wife, okay. and I really, 
<laughs> and I have a business and, yeah. you know, and, and I care deeply about events. I mean, I, my yeah. business is events. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a labor of love. I really enjoy social activities. I enjoy transformative experiences. Mm-hmm. And so I seek them out. I'm kind of addicted to them. Um, some way, you know, I'd say that and just kind of a, a, a general thirst of knowledge uh, keeps me pretty darn busy. But uh, mm-hmm. one day, one day I'm going to pick back, you know, drawing up or, or get, really get deeply back into sports. I enjoy a good yoga and a good meditation. So that's probably my entire day I just talked to you about. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Ben, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing all your words of wisdom here. Yeah, I, I guess, can I, can I leave? It sounds like the people who are listening are, 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 are starting a business. Can I leave them with a, uh, one, more, one more thought? Please do. You know, I think that one thing that I, I really have learned, um, and I, I steal this again from Radical Candor. It's a great book that I would recommend every CEO read. Um, I think the people that I've seen do the best at this are those that, that really thread the needle uh, between, and this is from Radical Candor, um, uh, caring deeply and challenging directly. And I would, I would offer that, that that idea of kind of really listening, knowing when it's time to change, really feeling that change, and then coupling that with compassion, not just empathy, but compassion as you lead, um, as well as the ability to be very direct all of those things combined have really helped me in my journey to become a better leader. So I'd recommend that everyone read that book. I, you know, I probably read it three times now. Um, and more than that, just, just embody that thought. Be, be deeply compassionate and really try to understand the people in your business. Never forget that they are counting on you to, to get them to change and to move quickly and, and to kind of find their best self. And that takes being direct. So I hope that's useful. That I would say that more than anything else has brought me to uh, this great place that I'm at right now, deep in the quicksand of a SaaS business in 2018. <laughs> well, um, that is amazing feedback. And what's great about it is we have uh, two homework assignments for people listening. They need to read Who and yes. Radical Candor. That's probably, I'd say that and the hard thing about hard things. Uh, if you read those three, I think you're ready for CEOship. Yeah, and just then just throw all of your fears, you know, into the wind, and you know, be prepared to never sleep and cry a lot. Right. So <laughs> so those, those things, and you're ready to go. The glory of running your own business. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Ben, thanks again for taking the time. I appreciate hey, all it. It means a lot to have. Thanks so much for having me. It means a lot. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.